Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Listen carefully to these words from Luke 17, 11 through 19, to hear what God is saying today. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten men with skin diseases approached him. Keeping their distance from him, they raised their voices and said, Jesus, Master, show us mercy. When Jesus saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. As they left, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw, what, when he saw that he had been healed, returned and praised God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus replied, Weren't ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? No one returned to praise God except this foreigner. Then Jesus said to him, Get up and go. Your faith has healed you. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of these words. Good morning, Urban Village Church. My name is Emily McKinley, and I have the Great joy of serving as um, the pastor of this community, um, but also serving in ministry leadership among so many folks who you have already seen up front and who uh, are not often seen up front, but keep this ship running. Um, why don't we come together in a word of prayer as we ready our hearts to hear what God has to say to us today. God, we thank you for the gift that it is to come together, even um, in our imperfections and in our shortcomings. We thank you that... Um, that you welcome us in our showing up. And so I ask that you would be present in this space, that you would um, open our hearts and our minds to receive what it is that you have to say, and that we might leave this place both challenged and comforted, encouraged and reminded that we are called to greater things than what we um, maybe imagine for ourselves, and that part of that greater thing involves deep joy, grace, and spaciousness for us to be our fullest selves even when that means we're not perfect. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. About a year or so ago, I learned about um, this kind of event that, uh, using church-appropriate language, I'll call fudge-up nights. Um, basically, it's a TED-esque style series of talks that celebrate fudging up. Uh, more importantly, I think it, it normalizes, destigmatizes, and de-shamifies our experiences of failure. Because in our world, stigma and shame are the kissing cousins to failure. Which is weird, I think, because, of, of course, the truth, the real thing is that failure is certain. Um, and uh, as long as we're alive, and especially as long as we are learning new things and living, we will fail, just like Derek said. Um, so last night, someone, a comedian tried out new material, and someone in the first row did not laugh. Uh, last week, uh, a researcher tested a hypothesis that didn't work out. Last year, someone interviewed for a job that they didn't get. Failure is certain. But failure, as certain and normal, as common as it may be, feels kind of like a little bit of a dirty little secret that we don't uh, often share about. There's the family member who never quite lived up to the standards um, 
of the family. There are the accountants who cook the books to make it seem like revenue was on the rise. Uh, there's the food I cooked last week and called Cajun style. Uh, <laughs> failure is everywhere. <laughs> but we act like it is nowhere, even though failure is part of what makes us human. And that's what's so great, I think, about these fudge-up nights, um, because it makes this fundamental reality of life and humanness acceptable and normal. Failure is not just acceptable, it's inevitable. And failure is what our sermon series is all about, because as it turns out, failure is a huge part of living faithfully, at least when we view it through our common, commonly accepted standards of, of success. When things like return on investment are held up as paramount, it's easy to get a skewed sense of things. And in our passage for today, we have this story about Jesus and the, the lepers. In, in the scripture passage, it says skin disease. Um, in other translations, it says lepers. Um, and if we're judging based on return on investment, we'd be kind of compelled to call this encounter a bust, right? Um, talk about a horrible return on investment. Of course, that's by our standards. Um, but, well, then, how might, how might we see this differently? It seems pretty straightforward, at least at first. Jesus uh, enters a village that sits on the border of Samaria and Galilee, which right away is a clue that things are going to be a little bit different because um, this border means something. Samaria is where the Jewish mudbloods live, which if you don't know what a mudblood means, I feel like I have somehow failed you as a pastor, but it's a Harry Potter reference. A quick history is that Samaritans are the descendants of Jews who ended up getting left behind in the shuffle during one of the many points of displacement in Jewish history. And these left-behind Jews intermarried with locals, and on top of that, um, their practice of worship evolved in a different way than the dominant um, uh, group because, as it turns out, there was no Facebook group that they could join to stay on point with the latest rituals and practices. So during Jesus' lifetime, the more religiously pure Jews felt like Samaritans were kind of the illegitimate, tainted Jews. They probably wouldn't even have called them Jewish. Um, so the animosity was real and extended more from the purest side than from the other way around. But I'm pretty sure no one was sending each other bouquets from edible arrangements for Rosh Hashanah. So Jesus is hanging out in this border area, which, as I said, is a clue that something weird is about to go down. But at first, it seems to kind of go along like a pretty typical healing story. The lepers are there keeping their distance as they're supposed to um, and shouting for mercy. And Jesus tells them to go show themselves to a priest because that's what, it was sort of like a reference to say, like, go show yourself to a priest because the priests were the ones who were going to verify that you were healed, right? Um, and, then, and then that's what would allow you access back to the community. But then there's this twist, right? One of the healed lepers comes back before even making it to the priest to show his gratitude and praise. And, you know, I'm inclined to think that the other nine fellas would have made their way back to say thanks, just not until after it had been verified by the priest, because in a way it's not true until someone with authority says that it's true. But I think it's kind of interesting because for the Samaritan, the Jewish priest isn't their really their religious authority necessarily, right? They've had to figure out their other areas of authority. So they were in some ways a little bit less beholden to the system than the other nine. But anyway, so this, this one uh, Samaritan comes back and, you know, so what's up with him, right? What's going on? Well, this is what Jesus is wondering too because he asks these three questions. Weren't 10 people cleansed? Where are the other nine? And no one re returned to praise God except this foreigner, which this last question, I'll be honest, feels a little bit rude, right? But um, in true rabbi fashion, I think Jesus is taking this opportunity as to be a teaching moment 
um, to point out the obvious in his particular brand, I think, of shade-throwing technique um, through questions. Um, in spite of his ninja-like capacity to imp improv a lesson plan, I have to wonder, how did Jesus feel about the fact that only one person came back to say thank you? Even though he, kno he knows the whole scene, right? He, knows, he gets it. Um, was he disappointed? Was he frustrated? Did he feel kind of cynical? Like, these people, they're never going to get it. Well, similar to last week, I think that this is one of those times when paying attention to what's around the scripture passage um, can help shed some light. Just before this story about the lepers, the author of Luke um, inserts a lesson from Jesus. So our passage for today started at verse 11, um, and these are, these are passages, uh, the verse, verses 7 through 10. So he, he, he says this, he, he shares this lesson um, to uh, his disciples. Would any of you um, say to your servant who had just come in from the field after plowing or tending sheep, come, sit down for dinner? Wouldn't you say instead, fix my dinner, put on the clothes of a table servant and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you can eat and drink. You wouldn't think to thank the servant because the servant did what was asked, would you? In the same way, when you have done everything required of you, you should say, we servants deserve no special praise. We have only done our duty. We have done our job. And I'm reminded a bit of, um, of a kind of stand-up piece that Chris Rock did several years ago when he was talking about dads. I'm like cleaning this up way up. Um, he was talking about um, dads who stick around and stay out of trouble. Um, and essentially he says, you don't get a gold star for meeting the basic standards of dadliness, right? It's called doing your job. So Jesus was just teaching about how we shouldn't expect to receive thanks for doing what is basically our job, right? And this gives us a glimpse of, I think, of where kind of his mindset is and where he's coming from. I mean, it's nice to be thanked and all, right? Personally, I love recognitions and awards. This is how I know I'm a millennial. Um, but if the reason why you're doing what you're doing is solely to be recognized, if awards and gold stars, if, if the number of likes and retweets that you get um, are the only markers of, that define a job well done, you will feel constantly anxious and dissatisfied with your performance. You, and so you might want to take some time for self-reflection about why it is that you're doing what you're doing. What is it for? I recently heard this interview with Barry Jenkins, who you might know um, is the director of the film Moonlight, which won the Oscar for Best Picture in the most memorable Oscar moment in history. Let's just uh, review that. And the Academy Award. <laughs> for Best Picture. You're impossible. <laughs> Come on. La La Land. I'm sorry. No. There's a mistake. There's a mistake. <laughs> Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Moonlight won. Come on, I, this is not a joke. This is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. This is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. Moonlight, Best Picture. I think you guys should keep it anyway. Oh, it's fine. I'm sorry. And you have to wonder, right, what was going through Barry Jenkins' head <laughs> when all of this was going down? Well, in the interview, he explains that up, up until the Oscars, there had been tons of award ceremonies. 
um, that he had attended. And, and some of those awards ceremonies had awarded Moonlight as uh, Best Picture, and others had awarded La La Land. And so, you know, it kind of, he was sort of used to it going back and forth. And so when La La Land was announced, he was just kind of like, well, you know. And he says that he was actually texting someone about making sure there would be champagne on ice by the time he got to his post-Oscar get-together because he knew he would need something to just kind of like calm down a little bit. And so in, an, in this interview that I heard him um, talking about and reflecting, here's just a snippet of what he shared about that moment. I mean, even now, it's like, I can't believe that happened. <laughs> no, no one can I believe that happened. That happened. <laughs> no, no, but, but, but even all of it, I had two things I couldn't believe it happened because for two minutes, we didn't win Best Picture, and I was fine. I was, mm. I was you know, the Underground Railroad was already happening. There's something else that's going to be announced that was already happening. Just all these things. I, I was... You know, I have a career now, you know, and, and I'm anxious to create more work. I was good. And then two minutes later, ooh, shit, I was way better than good. <laughs> so um, for those of you who don't know, this is actually, Moonlight was actually Jenkins' second film that he's ever made. Um, the first one, uh, which was entitled Medicine for Melancholy, which is uh, really good, um, is a short that came out in 2008. Um, and he was just, so he was grateful, as you can hear him sharing, he was grateful just to be creating right? To be able to, to not have to hustle so hard, right? To simply do the thing that he loved to do. Getting the Oscar for Best Picture is tremendous, right? But as he said, for the two minutes that he hadn't won, he was fine. For Jenkins, what defined his sense of security and confidence was less the awards and more the fact that he was creating, that he was able to live into doing the work that he loved and that filled his spirit. The award was not a small sign, right? Um, but it was, and it was proof that others saw the worth of what he was doing, but it didn't validate his sense of call as a filmmaker. And it certainly didn't validate him. And those two minutes were proof to him that he was in a really good place about that. And so how was Jesus feeling when, he came to, when it came to be that there was only one person who returned to give thanks and praise? Well, I like... I wonder if he felt a little bit like Barry Jenkins, right? And every other person who was doing the work that is theirs to do. I wonder if he simply felt glad to have healed 10 people, to have given them another shot at life, to have opened up the possibility for them to once again be part of a community rather than cast to the margins, having to shout from a distance so that way people knew that a leper was coming. Remember, Jesus' overarching goal is restoration and reconciliation of creation toward wholeness of life for all. This is what he came to do. And that's what he was doing. And while it's clear that he feels sort of like some type of way, right, about the folk who did not respond in gratitude, he turns his attention to the one that did and kind of completes this process of salvation, which is, I think, a little bit unique. Because for this Samaritan, restoration and reconciliation wasn't just about the body. I mean, that was real, right? But it was also about healing a painful history. The fact that Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, a pure one, would say to this Samaritan, your faith has healed you is no small thing. That this Samaritan's faith would not only be recognized, but also legitimized, went one further than the leprous wounds that his body carried. For Jesus, failure was less about return on investment than the joy of investment itself. His work was to offer access to saving grace. A grace that says, like he said to the ten, you are healed, no strings attached. A grace that is shrewdly generous, 
like the pointed questions that he asked, giving, chance, giving the listeners a chance to have their hearts pricked, but giving them also an equal chance to save face in public. A grace that is powerfully patient, which knows that seeds planted may not bear fruit all at the same time or in the same way. A grace that says you are enough, not because of what you do, but because of who you are. A grace that offers freedom in the fullest sense. Full freedom from the anxieties to perform against external and false values. Freedom from the expectations of others, even the people who love you. Freedom from the self-harming stories that we tell ourselves. Stories that limit our imaginations about what is possible. Stories that brutally, brutally abuse our sense of self-worth. Stories that damage the work and project of life that God is trying to enact in you and through you. Over these next few weeks, we'll consider the ways that God is trying to change the story that we tell ourselves. The story about why we are, who we are, and what we're for. And today, we're reminded that knowing what we are for, whether it is a filmmaker or a father, an accountant or a teacher, that the creating acts that we are engaged in ought to be enough in themselves. The joy of the investment. Everything else is a bonus. This doesn't get us off the hook for trying. As co-creators with God, we are called to excellence, integrity, and commitment in the work that we do and in the lives that we lead. But do not confuse those things with success. Sometimes these are the traits of successful people. But I know plenty of people who have demonstrated excellence, integrity, and commitment who have not been wildly successful. And in fact, we can think of a few folks who demonstrate the exact opposite of those traits and somehow have managed to be successful. I'm sure you can think of some of those. <laughs> if you are consumed by anxiety, if you are dogged by fear, if you are constantly measuring yourself against others in unhealthy ways, take some time to examine what is behind that anxiety. What is behind that fear? And then prayerfully, courageously, begin to defang those monsters. Because the story that they are whispering in your ear is not the story that God is trying to tell through you. Like Jesus, you may not always get an apparent return on your investment, but also like Jesus, who received that grateful Samaritan and did him one extra, you might still be able to find yourself satisfied with a job well done. Let us pray. God, we thank you that you call us to a different set of standards, a more life-giving set of standards than what we can imagine for ourselves and certainly what we inflict on one another. And so I ask that you would, as we absorb this message that you have to say to us today, that you would help us to be people of courage, people of um, deep wisdom and discernment to know which stories that are being told in our lives are the ones worth carrying forward and which ones need to be left behind. Help us to be people who not only receive your grace with no strings attached, but also pay that forward to enact that grace in the world around us, a, a world that is deeply anxious, deeply insecure, and deeply unsure of its place with one another. Help us to be agents of that life-giving freedom, that life-giving liberation that reminds us that we are enough, not because of what we do, but because of who we are in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <laughs>